1: What is the Goofy Foot Layup? Why is free play so important to athletic development? Can basketball practices be too structured? The only question left is, say it with me, you win... Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I am excited to bring on my buddy Brian McCormick, who is an author, coach, and basketball guy, and uh, a guy that looks at the game in a much different way than most coaches do and that always gets me excited. So Brian, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show to break down some interesting coaching philosophies today. Thanks for having
0: me again, Nick. Always a good time.
1: Absolutely. And so people can't see you right now, but I can. And uh, you are wearing a T-shirt and it says the words goofy foot in a goofy font. Uh, Why are you wearing this T-shirt and what does it mean?
0: All right. So uh, the more I listen to, you know, NBA commentators and I'm going to pick on Jeff Van Gundy and Chris Webber because I know they uh, said this during the playoffs, but they continually – Uh, refer to layups that are taken off uh, the same foot. So if I'm shooting a right-handed layup, uh, they're jumping off the right foot. They continually refer to this as a wrong-footed layup. Uh, And I just disagree, (laughs) Uh, and I think the connotation that it's wrong or incorrect uh, is inaccurate, and I think it hurts players development and the way that coaches look at the game. And I think we really do underestimate how much uh, power the media has in determining, you know, how, you know, especially, you know, beginner coaches or, you know, volunteer coaches, how they learn the game, because I think, you know, there is a lot of learning that goes on when you watch a game. And when you know, if the coach Uh, you know, doesn't know where else to start. He's getting information from watching an NBA game or a college game and and listening to some of the analysis that goes on. So I think when when they have these inaccuracies, I think it's detrimental ultimately to the youth players who are affected by it. Um, And so rather than call it a wrong foot layup, uh, I prefer the term goofy foot, which is something that I took from snowboarding. Uh, But essentially, you know, you have your traditional – Layup, which is if I'm going to shoot a right handed layup, I jump off my left foot. And then you have a goofy foot layup, which is if I'm going to shoot a right handed layup, I jump off my right foot. Uh, and I think the fact that players do this repeatedly in games and it becomes a solution to a problem when they're going to the basket, you know, it's not just an acceptable shot. It is, in a lot of times, a necessary and a good shot to use. And I've even seen uh, coaches who are described as among the best skill development coaches in the NBA who practice these shots with you know, NBA players. So what we end up having is a youth system where we spend all our time trying to get players not to jump off their right foot for a right-handed layup. And then once they get up to the upper levels of high school, college, and the NBA, now we're reteaching them uh, this habit that we spent Sometimes in some cases with some players, you know, it takes a year or more to break them of that habit. And then, you know, we get them to the NBA and now we have to spend upwards of a year trying to recreate this habit that was actually natural from when they started to play basketball.
1: What's uh, really amazing about this discussion is that yesterday I was working with my daughter who's in seventh grade who just started to play basketball for the first time. And, uh, of course, the coaches love her jump shot, <laughs> so that's good. But I'm working on her on driving to the basket, and I swear she just naturally will go off the off foot. And If you, if you follow me on Twitter, I will rail against Van Gundy too during this game and say we have to stop calling it the wrong foot. I, I'm totally in agreement. I, I just call it off foot, but either way, goofy foot or off foot works for me. Uh, but when you watch, like, you know, younger players, you're right. We spend a lot of time forcing them to do the other way, which – we I would acknowledge is the is the more there's a balance there that is sort of natural, I suppose, but you know nothing in the game of basketball is that natural. We all have to learn everything you know from scratch anyway so I keep stressing to her. I'm like, I'm, I'm working on like the left foot, right hand layup. But every time she does it on the right foot, I said, "Okay, that's fine. We're gonna and we're gonna get there too." Um, and I'm excited about that because she already seems natural doing it that way, and she's making them. So without question, uh, we we have to stop. You know, taking it's almost like in second grade when you know a kid is doing a nice drawing and the teacher pulls takes the pen out of the hand and says, "That's not how you do it." And all of a sudden, you just you've now lost an artist for the rest of his life.
0: So I would. I would add that, and I I argue this in one of my videos on on my YouTube channel, is that for a a young child, jumping off the right foot for a right-handed layup is actually the more natural movement, because every action that they've done to that point in their life, running, skipping, it's always a contralateral movement. So if I'm raising my right arm, I'm raising my left leg. And so if I'm jumping off my right leg, I'm raising my left leg, if that makes sense. So as I jump off to shoot a goofy foot layup, I'm jumping off my right leg, so my right leg stays down. I'm raising my right arm, and I'm lifting my left leg. And so that's the same pattern as when we're running. When you run, it's a contralateral motion. So my left leg comes up, my right arm comes up. And when you skip, my left leg comes up, my right arm comes up. And so it's only – so to me, those – before players start shooting a layup, those are – the movements that they've practiced. They've never done this same side movement with of raising a right leg and raising a right arm at the same time. Ah, yes. To me, it's not only teaching a skill of shooting a layup, but we're also teaching a completely different movement pattern from what they've naturally developed, uh, walking, running, skipping, etc. And so, in a sense, we're trying to do two things at one time. We're trying to disrupt their rhythmic pattern of movement and we're trying to do it with a ball with a goal of making a layup. And so it doesn't mean that that's wrong and that we shouldn't do that. But I do think that, especially with absolute beginners, you know, I think it's probably better to focus on getting in the, the confidence to make a shot regardless of what foot they're jumping off of. And then, Uh, Once they get comfortable making a shot now we can start to expose them to okay Sometimes you're gonna shoot off this foot sometimes you're gonna shoot off this foot Sometimes you shoot with your inside hand Sometimes you shoot with your outside hand and start to expose them and give them as many options as possible When they go to the basket as opposed to narrowing them and say no when you go on the right side You always jump off your left foot you always shoot with your right hand on the left side You always jump off your right foot you always shoot with your left hand, so they're limited to only doing one thing. And so I think a lot of coaches think that if we limit players first, they'll learn quicker. And I think if we allow them to do the, their natural movement pattern, which is, you know, is the goofy foot layup, and let them get some success, and then we can start to introduce all the other. Different potential options, you know, as they start to have some success. Love it, and for those of
1: you who haven't heard Brian before, this is, this is the prime example of why he is so valuable because he has that innate understanding of what works, especially at the youth level. And and you're right. Like I I will now you know not stress it as much <laughs> with my daughter as I'm working with her. I will throw this out though. Is you know because I have spent a lot of time at the eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh grade levels, and we do get kids who simply struggle, like left-handed layouts off the right foot. They just struggle with that all the time time and so there are techniques and I just will throw this out there the one I use a lot for like the seven, uh, the seven and eight year olds is is skipping like you mentioned but when you skip and you bring that right knee, knee up you bring the right hand up so they kind of jump and they do that and so they know the skipping form already because they're used to that and then it's a simple like lifting the arm up with the left leg and the left arm and the right leg alternating that seems to have made a big difference for me to accelerate that process of learning the the the, 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 uh, the traditional layup I guess we'll call it um, and so the other and the other reason why the off foot layup is, is so good is that it definitely screws up the timing of the defense so I feel like people might argue oh it's too awkward it's not worth learning but when you watch you know the, uh, at the highest level Kyrie Irving is probably the best I've seen at it and he just catches those defenders off guard and is able to then make it not awkward and this incredible touch on his finishes so I think that's pretty good proof that like that's where we should be working towards
0: I think it's only awkward if it's something that's been trained out of a player. You know, it's and you know when a player first tries to convert over to do a left-footed right-hand layup, well, that's awkward at first too. So um, I think it's only awkward when we're when we've trained it out and it's something that we don't allow and players don't use it, and then they try to do it for the first time. Any any new skill or any new movement is going to be awkward the first time.
1: Yeah, and let's not forget the other way, because if you saw my Russell Westbrook video, we charted his footwork on all his drives and which was hurting him the most or the lowest field goal percentage. And he does uh, a lot more – he doesn't really do a lot of one-foot jumps. He will go left-right and jump off both of those feet. But when he's going left-right, he's shooting with the right hand. And Tony Parker does it, and you'll hear the announcers get confused and think he's doing like an off-foot layup when he's really jumping off both feet. And that's just, But that's an extension of making that a lot less awkward, and then that becomes a one-footed if you want it to be. And so you're right. I feel like what we get into is the announcers are from an era – uh, of with which we they didn't understand these concepts. A lot of things have happened since then. In the last, I don't know, probably even like ten years. Wouldn't you say the last ten years has been an explosion okay. of this information?
0: Yeah, and I would say you know I um, I know you're a pro shot shooting, you know Paul Hoover guy, and and you know he has those videos, you know where he shows players that don't understand their shot and and you know stuff like that. And to me, things like that. Uh, it makes sense to me because players will tend to repeat what they've been taught, you know? So if you ask somebody verbally, well, how do you shoot? They're not necessarily t- saying how they shoot. They're saying how they've been taught to shoot, but what they actually do is a hundred percent different. So if you ask, if you ask a player, you know, well, do you, how do you shoot a layup? Well, I jump off my left foot, but then you show them video of them jumping off their right foot. And they're like, Oh, well, I just did it. Like when I was watching this NBA skill coach work with an NBA player and he kept he was trying to do the drill to get him to jump off his right foot and he couldn't do it and then they started to play 3 on 3 and a you know a big post player rotated over and immediately he jumps off his right foot and finishes a right-hand layup and the coach is like, "See?" And he's like, "I don't know what happened. I didn't I just I just did it. You know, I just moved. I just created a shot. Like I didn't think about what foot I was jumping off of." And so I think you know, that happens, and, and we get confused about the importance of declarative knowledge versus, you know, procedural knowledge. So can I talk about exactly what I do, which essentially is what a coach does or what the media does during a game, or can I just do it? And for an athlete, it's more important just to be able to do it. You know, for a coach, you have to be able to explain it to somebody, and for the media, you should be able to explain it as well. But there's a difference, and just because I'm shooting differently than I say I'm shooting – to me, that makes sense because I'm just repeating what I was taught verbally, even though I may not physically uh, follow those same directions. But what I remember in terms of verbal instructions are, uh, well, I was taught, you know, ten toes to the rim. You know, even though I'm maybe I never ever have done that, it's just that's what I was taught and that's why I remember. So if somebody asked me what I do when I shoot, I say, well, I, ten toes to the rim because. You know, I think that I'm doing what I was taught, whereas really I'm individualizing that instruction based on my own unique uh, constraints, you know, in terms of my strength, my size, my skill level. And then also, you know, my technique is then going to change ultimately based on the situation as well, the defense, the distance of the shot, so on and so forth. So sometimes I may think that I'm shooting a layup off my left foot with my right hand. But that defensive player slid over late, and I took that one extra step. And now I'm on my right foot shooting with my right hand, and I made the layup. And I figure I made it because I did what I was taught, where in reality I just did this shot that I created in that moment mm-hmm. based on the situation.
1: Yeah, and that's all out of experience of, what you, of just playing and, and getting that knowledge of what your body can and can't do. I think that coaches get hung up, and I, I certainly get hung up on this, is that you know, we, we don't want a player to take a shot he hasn't practiced 500,000 times before. And, I, and there's a notion there that I, I agree with, and I like it, certainly from a shot selection uh, type of, you know, uh, uh, philosophy. But, uh, but now you're talking about the creativity and the athletic ability and the, and the individuality of people where, you know, a lot of times some of the best offensive actions you do get are, are things that maybe you've never worked on. They come organically. And I think that also, I suppose what we're saying is it translates to the individual moves themselves.
0: Yeah, so I have a I have an article that I wrote. I think it was in 2014 at the end of the WNBA season. There was a play, um, and you can find it on YouTube. Lindsey Whalen caught the ball on the fast break and ended up throwing an underhand scoop alley-oop pass to Maya Moore as she finished, um, you know, and so she caught it and finished a layup. And so to me, that was an expression of a player. I imagine – that Lindsay Whalen has never practiced that specific pass. And I imagine she's probably never thrown an alley pass to Maya Moore from outside the three point line ever in practice, but she has the capacity. And by reading the defense, there was no other way that the ball could get to Moore in that situation. And so she was able to find this solution and complete the pass. And so, Again, I agree. We get caught up in well, you can you have to practice exactly what you're going to do in a game, but uh, there's also this idea for motor learning from the work of Nikolai Bernstein is the idea of repetition without repetition. And so, basically, what we're saying is you have a general skill or a general technique. You know, so let's say your shooting technique. So you have your general shooting technique, but that's always going to vary based on your individual constraints and then also the task constraints of a specific shot. So from shot to shot, my individual constraints might vary just in terms of fatigue. So when I'm I'm tired, I'm going to have to shoot slightly different than when I'm fresh. And so we don't even notice these differences because they're happening at a subconscious level and at a muscular level in terms of how I'm Uh, you know, which muscles are firing when and the sequencing of muscles and so forth. And there are things that we we don't even think about and we can't even think about them. If we did think about them, we'd completely mess up our shot. Um, And so those are some of the individual constraints and then also the task constraints. So I'm going to have to shoot different if there's a defensive player running at me versus if I'm, you know, wide open. I'm going to shoot differently if I'm running full speed, whereas if I'm standing still. Uh, you know, I'm going to shoot differently against a short defender versus a long defender. These are all things that are going to influence my shot, and so there are, are a number of parts to my shot that are going to be consistent and are going to look the same. But from shot to shot, there are going to be subtle differences, both in terms of my external technique and also what's going on, you know, with within my body or from my brain, essentially. And so, to a naked eye, uh, you know, and to a general observer. You look at somebody like Steph Curry and go, oh, yeah, every one of his shots looks exactly the same. But if you actually look at his shots, there's a lot of variation, you know, from shot to shot with some of the shots that he takes. And there's no way that he could possibly practice
1: mm-hmm. every shot
0: that he takes in a game, you know. And by the way, and I've, I, and I've watched him practice. He,
1: he doesn't. He does all the very traditional things. And right. now I know in the, there's offseason stuff where he's privately doing things where I'm sure it gets a little bit more crazy. But, yeah, he had that one play against the Clippers maybe two years ago now where he dribbled through five guys and, like, stepped back and nailed it, you know, three, right? You, you, he didn't practice that.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's, and so that's kind of the difference between uh, what we think of as being the right approach in terms of, well, you need to go and practice this shot 10,000 times before I let you shoot in a game. But in reality, you know, it's you can't practice every single shot that's going to be available in a game. And you certainly can't practice every single shot that's going to be available 10,000 different times. So, uh, you know, the key is to build a skill that's adaptable so that you have the certain parts that are consistent, but that you're able to adapt it to these different situations.
1: Absolutely. Well, let let me ask you this because I've had this interesting conversation with um, coaches and and a certain type of coach about like 10 toes to the rim, which you mentioned earlier about how, you know, we kind of espouse having a turn because that's how all the great shooters have done it, save for very few. And so I've gotten this argument where I shouldn't be teaching that, the idea of a turn. Um, you, you must force 10 toes to the rim and teach that so that eventually, at some point in the nebulous future, like, and, and they acknowledge it, like, yeah, they will ultimately find that alignment that they need in a turn, but you must force them, you know, to do it 10 toes to begin with when you're teaching and coaching it. And to me, it just sounds like you are delaying the process a little bit. Um, and I was wondering if you could help me understand where that comes from and why that's kind of a prevalent attitude across a certain section of coaching.
0: Well, I, I can't speak for why other coaches tend to go that way because um, I think I'm probably one who you know, <laughs> is on the other far end of the curve or the spectrum in terms <laughs> of the way that we think about the game. Um, but I do think, um, you know, I think I could play devil's advocate for both sides. Um, you know, in terms of one, I would generally say I wouldn't force a player to do anything specifically, you know, so I'm not, if you brought a player to me, I'm not going to immediately say, okay, 10 toes to the rim. I'm also probably not going to say immediately, all right, I want you to turn X degrees and shoot from there. I'm going to see what that player does to begin with. I'm going to see how successful that player is doing whatever it is that they do. And then there are players who I will move and, you know, for various reasons, increase their turn. There are some players that I might decrease their turn, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, based on what I see and what I feel is uh, kind of limiting their success. And if they're already successful and don't need much change, certainly not from the lower body, they don't need any change. Well, then I'm not going to mess with it. Uh, You know, I had that experience when I was young. Uh, my, you know, I started off our. I think our first tournament. You know, I didn't start on a competitive team until I was in fifth grade. And so our first tournament when we were in fifth grade, I was like nine of ten from the free throw line. And I came to practice, and the coach, my, our assistant coach, who had a couple older sons who are pretty good players, so he was kind of considered to be a good coach because of that, was kind of like, well, you know, you're a pretty good shooter, but you could be even better if you put 10 toes to the rim. Because I, when I had started shooting on my own, I had a natural slight turn. And so, you know, if you if you just turned and you aligned 10 toes to the rim, you'd be an even better shooter. Now, again, I was first term of the year, I shot 90%. So I don't know how much better I really could have done right. you know, on that, you know, as a fifth grader in my first competitive basketball experience. Um, and so from that time on, you know, I always was caught somewhere in the middle, and if I'd think about it, then I'd try to straighten out because that's what my coach told me. If I didn't think about it, I'd end up shooting with a little bit of turn, and then, then, I had to, then I'd had then think about it, and I'd change back and forth. And I'd end ended up just messing with my head a little bit, uh, you know, as I start continue to play and everything. So uh, as a coach, you know, that to me is one of the formative experiences from my playing experiences is, is – you know, having that coach tell me. And so I never want to be that coach to take a successful player and try to change something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if a player came to me, I'm going to see what they do. And then I'm going to see how successful they are doing that. And then I'm going to make as few changes as possible to have as much positive impact as possible. Well, uh,
1: yeah, uh, go ahead. yeah one of my One of my mantras tends to be, you know, no coaching is infinitely better than bad coaching. And so I agree. And the funny thing with me is for the turn because I've tried to develop a better way of teaching that, you know, because I think the fear that coaches have is that they'll turn too much. Or they'll never be able to figure out where they should be. It's too nebulous and abstract. Well, I don't think it's that way. I feel like you can teach your body, just like if you want to teach them 10 toes to the rim, you can teach that turn the same amount every time. And I feel like to, to a certain mindset of people, um, it's hard for them to grasp that. So, just I'll throw this out there too as another tip. What I started to do was, um, you know, most of the time when you watch kids shoot, at least, uh, they will end up landing in some sort of a turn. Right, like they're in the air, they shoot their shot, and when they land, there's going to be, I rarely see a kid who can actually land with 10 toes still pointing to the rim. And so one, once they land, that is where I say, OK, this is where your body is telling you to do it. And it could very well be you know, wherever it is on that spectrum, uh, on, that, uh, on that circle. And then that's what we kind of start with and work on. And I've gotten a lot better results just from doing that a little bit. And that's kind of like no coaching. I'm not really doing anything but just listening to what their body is showing them and we work from there. It seems like it helps.
0: Yeah, I would say that's one of the things that I think I have problems with a lot of coaches is – I really think we underestimate the intelligence of the body and also the intelligence of children. And so I, I think we need to listen more to the player and listen more to kind of what you're saying, listen more to what the body is telling us. Um, because going in with this idea that I'm the coach, I know exactly what to do, you have to do it this way all the time, and ignoring uh, the player and ignoring what their body is saying, Uh, I think we shortchange that athlete, and we tend to try to take a group of players to do one thing in one way, whereas that whole group comes with a lot of different, you know, variants between them in terms of size, limb length, you know, hand size, strength, previous experience, skill level, success rate, all these things, you know, as I, I say this to coaches all the time, you almost never get a player who doesn't have some pre-existing technique or skill you know so even take like i talked about at the beginning taking a very beginning first time ever touching a basketball they have this pre-existing movement of running skipping walking where everything is contralateral so even though they've never shot a layup before and they're a complete beginner they bring this to their first time playing basketball and so every time you get a player they have this pre-existing knowledge, whether it's, you know, declarative knowledge or just in terms of kind of procedural knowledge. And so we have to take that into account, I think. And instead of saying, nope, you know, forget everything you've ever done. This is exactly, everybody has to do it the same way. I just don't think that's practical.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it also is soul-killing to some degree with a lot of the kids who, you know, either feel like they can't get it, they'll never get it. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot of, uh, 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 you know wasted energy in theory where you can get, get more to the, the root of like what makes them love that sport first and build from there because you see how cynical it could get once you get into like they get good and now they're playing under pressure at an early age. I mean, we've all seen that and that's that's unfortunate because you still want to maintain some connection to that. Uh, which also, I, I just wanted to acknowledge. I rip you off every at least once a week um, when I talk about this notion of um, you know coaches who want practice to be uh, perfect. They want their drills to be perfect. They want the lines to be right. I, by the way, I still like nice, neat lines, so I will say that. But um, when you get out there, um, I feel like coaches are worried that if any, if another coach were to walk in the gym right now, you know, it, it better look exactly the way everyone else's practices look like, perfectly, right? And so I can't tell you what a revelation it was to read in one of your books, I believe, about you know, do not be afraid to be chaotic and allow players at any age to engage in like, you know, live drills that might look like a, you know, a battlefield but ultimately will rapid, much more rapidly increase the, the, the development and the skill level.
0: Yeah. Um, my, uh, my girlfriend and I, because she's a college coach, we always joke, you know, when we because we've been to a couple final fours and stuff and you watch the open practices and everything's neat and orderly and planned and we always joke we're like, "Oh, I just want to coach in a final four just so they can see how absurd our practices look." Cuz we literally we would be out there with an open practice with college players like playing tag and stuff like that with balls going everywhere and doing <laughs> stuff like that and I just think that it would be so different than what everybody else shows then nobody would know how to do, know what to do with us, and so that's like our main reason for wanting to get to that level is just to to show how absurd some of the things that we do when you look at it from from their context and what they're used to. Uh, but from a from a coaching standpoint, I totally totally agree. I mean, I think if uh, you know more traditional coaches walked into my practices, they would immediately you know turn around and walk back out uh, because what I do is typically different than what a lot of coaches tend to do or what a lot of coaches would uh, think of as being a good practice. And, you know, I mean, I've, I have I know this because I know people have brought me in to run practices for them and they have, like, their assistant coaches coming up to them going, what's this guy doing? Like, why is he playing? This is varsity high school basketball. Why is he playing tag with them? I'm like, because they can't fucking dribble. Like, <laughs> that's why. Like, yeah, sure, they can do your nice, neat, you know, baseline-to-baseline dribbling drills, but they can't beat anybody off the dribble in a game. And if you watch them play tag, they can't beat anybody. They're getting tagged in, like, five seconds because they can't change directions with the ball. And that's what you have to be able to do in a game. And when you're doing your nice, neat dribbling lines that look perfect, they're not learning that. And the other part of that is, you know, there's the fundamental misunderstanding of what learning is, that learning is not just repeating something that we can already do well. So if we're running a practice and there's no mistakes being made, we're just doing what we can already do, and that's not learning. We have to change something in order for there to be learning. And then we also have to be able to transfer that, we have to be able to retain that learning and transfer it to a to a different situation for there to be, you know, for us to really say that there's learning. And if we're only practicing the same things over and over in the same exact way um, with the same exact results. We're not really improving, and we're not really learning. And so, in reality, what are we doing? Uh, you know, at practice. I,
1: I hear you, and uh, um, it's it's um, the, yeah. The, the notion of sort of live play, and, and I'm just thinking about how you, what tag is, and tag is. I think with a ball, and you have a confined space, right? You need to be able to yeah. you know, not get tagged, just like we would play as a kid, right? Yep. And then yeah, we, yeah, yeah,
0: we do it. We'll do it either with uh, everybody has a ball, or maybe. The people who are it have a ball and nobody else does or sometimes everybody else has a ball and the people who are it don't have a ball. So,
1: Yeah. I mean and it's just fun. I think that's the other thing is I think, you know, uh, you, know you have to look at it from the mind of a, of a player sometimes. And if you can imagine the drudgery of going to practice, it was funny because I used to do, you know, different things to warm up uh, every day and just kind of make it interesting and I, I had coaches come in and say, "No, you got to have the same exact warm up every day of the season, so they know when they come in like what they're going to expect and how it's going to be." And uh, you know, I, I, whenever I, I didn't like it, and I and I had and I wasn't even doing it, and you could see the sort of disdain after a while on the on the kids' faces because it's not competitive, it's not active, um, and I can't I can't stress enough at every age level, and you know, even up in the college, how. When the the difference in um, in the uh, the how fast they develop that much quicker from that because it's it's real it's chaotic it's lifelike it's game like it's truly game like and I feel like uh, that's that's one of the issues we have is that you know the coaches stress the stuff that isn't really happening on the court uh, and then they're not ready for when the the unexpected happens.
0: Yeah, and to go back a second, you know, I think there is something to be said for having something consistent and having kind of a routine. Um, but I don't think that means that, that you know, your first activities always have to be the same, you know? So like I watched I, I watched John Sparrow, who's the um, men's volleyball coach, U.S. men's volleyball coach, and also men's volleyball coach at UCLA. Um, and so he would do things like before practice, they would meet outside the gym and they would go over practice or they would have like a almost like a meditation setting and and then he would tell the players okay whenever you're ready you go in and start warming up on your own and then once everybody was in then they started to do the group activities so that was kind of setting the tone for practice and kind of differentiating between life and practice and all right you know you had a tough day whatever something's happening in your personal life okay come here figure out how to you know, forget about it. And now once you're ready and mentally prepared to practice, now we'll start practice. Um, So I think some things like that can have value, but I don't think it means that, you know, you have to do, you know, start practice with something like the three man weave every single day, just so that you have, you know, a routine or a, a practice drill that shows that you're at practice time. Now, I think it can be done in different creative ways, even bringing everybody together and having, you know, a two minute pep talk at the beginning of practice. And then you know, telling them what our first activity is going to be, go do it. You know, so there's different ways to do it. But I do think there is some value to having some kinds of routines, but also having variability within that routine.
1: You know, you mentioned like, you know, learning and, how, and what you can do to learn and, and improve. Uh, and I think a lot of coaches will, you know, they'll have them run suicides on a mistake. You're doing layup lines and the kid misses the layup and they all run. And you know, I somebody on—I think my buddy Mark on Twitter had said this. You know, it's kind of hard to to get better at shooting layups when you're busy running suicides. <laughs> and, and I think and I, I think that's right.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's uh, I, I I have an article about that too because I was coaching volleyball one season and uh, we were talking about how I was coaching the JV team. We were talking about how the JV players always miss their serves, and one of the varsity players was like. Why play club, and when we miss a serve, they make us run? And I was like, yeah, but these girls need to practice serving, like, (laughs) that's the problem. A varsity club team, it's not necessarily what I would do, but I could understand that because a miss serve at that level is probably because of a lack of concentration. And so you're forcing them to run so that you have something there to help them concentrate. When you're looking at, well, my JV players in this case, who were more or less beginners they weren't missing serves because they weren't concentrating they were missing serves because they weren't good enough mm-hmm. and so if you're then you're punishing them for not being good and then they don't want to try anything yeah and so so you have to differentiate what's causing the mistakes is it because I have you know, really good players and they're just not concentrating today, and so maybe I need to do something to try to get them to concentrate, whether that's making them run or maybe we need to change the activity or maybe we need to take a water break or maybe we need to talk or you know, whatever it is, whatever your coaching style is, what do you want to do to get their attention back and their concentration back on task? Or is it a player who's young, immature, and isn't skilled enough yet to, maybe they can make layups, but it doesn't mean that they can make 100% of layups because they're, you know, a relative beginner. And to expect them to make 100% of shots probably isn't realistic. And so now you're just punishing a lack of talent, and that just discourages that player. And that I think is where we lose players who end up quitting because they're like, well, you know, I tried hard, but my coach made me run because I wasn't good enough. Yeah, it's like that's a crappy reason to be running.
1: Um, I, I also think it's funny, when I did it for my for the freshman team, I think, uh, you know, the attention to detail is really paramount the way when I coach. I really want to make sure they're aware of it and that we're aware of it and that you can't just sort of skirt through certain things. And so I, I would do it like a really simple drill where two lines in the half court, the first line has the ball, they dribble to like the top of the key, jump stop, pivot, bounce pass, layup. I wasn't even rating whether the layup went in. I wanted to make sure they would they would jump stop, left foot pivot. Just to make sure they could do it, right? We had the skills to do that. And um, and if they they had to do ten in a row or however many players there were, they had to do you know twelve in a row. And if they if the guy turned the wrong way or he threw a chest pass instead of a bounce pass, then we'd start over. And I wasn't running on punch, and We just start over and they keep doing it, keep doing it. And I got to tell you, it felt like the frustration. And but then the the, the, I don't know if it's frustration, but the, the desire to want to do it seemed to increase every, with every time we quite didn't get it right, whereas I've seen it when you stop the drill and you run for 30 seconds and you try and get back into the drill that it's disjointed and it develops more of a sense of either anger at the teammates for not doing it right – uh, as opposed to a collective mind focus. It seems like the focus increases and they really get into it more even if they don't get it right after a number of times uh, rather than interrupting it and having to run. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. When I was um, in fifth and sixth grade, our my coach, uh, my dad made us do that. At the beginning of practice every day, uh, we had to make 20 right-handed layups in a row and 20 left-handed layups in a row as a team, and we didn't move on from practice until we could do that. So essentially it's just each person has to make two layers, right, because we had, I think we had 10 players on the team, right, so, uh, but what it does, not only, like you're talking about the collective mindset and, and motivating each other, but it also made us want to practice outside of practice on our weekend so that we weren't the one to miss a layup, because we wanted to get to, you know, the quote unquote important stuff, You know, so we, you know, we didn't want to spend an hour doing layups, so we would practice more on our own to make sure that we didn't miss. So without them having to give us any instruction, okay, you need to practice on your own. You need it. It was self motivated because of this simple drill at the beginning of practice that we knew. Every practice we were going to come in, and as a team, we had to do it. And it was kind of a team building. It was definitely layup practice, which at that level is pretty much how you win and lose games anyway. So it probably is the most important skill. And then, but but it did have this self-motivating effect of, all right, I missed one of the layups today. I'm, I want to go home and practice on my own so that I don't miss a layup next practice.
1: Yeah, it's, and I think it's just a, it's a it's a subtle shift of, of the collective consciousness. As far as you know, what is motivating them? And I think that's important. when We're talking about team building and stuff. And I remember, like my last three years, when I really made a, a push. And I, the X's and O's, I felt like I had down really well in teaching those. And I made a really big push towards the communication and the psychological uh, side of it. And a lot of it went against what I had learned or what, I, what my instincts were to make them tough and get them in there, or whatever. But you know, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that if you looked at the way my teams played, nobody would tell you that they weren't tough. And they yeah. weren't focused and they weren't there, you know, even in the absence of these grueling throw up inducing practices where, of, you know, that are half suicides, you know, under 30. Uh, and I, and I still did them by the way, I would probably do even less now. and just make sure that my drills uh, were more full court and more alive to get whatever sense of cardio that people are always demanding. They want from that. Uh, and I told this before, like I have all these great two line, three line, four line drills to teach a triangle offense. And I never did enough three-on-three three and four-on-four four out of those drills. I just felt like, okay, we're going to get these so rote that they're going to be bored with them, and that's how I know they understand it. But in reality, the best practices we ever had, I'll still, I still remember them, were when I would do it, and and, I, and for some reason it took me too long to make that connection where I'm like, gosh, that drill, when we did three-on-three three out of our three-line drills was so good and I just didn't. It didn't. I'm like, didn't occur to me. The light bulb didn't go off until much later. I'm like, wait a minute. We should be doing that more. And uh, and that's again, that's the exact notion of the 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 live drills that you know. Then you start getting things you never would have practiced, like we talked about in the beginning of this thing, where you get these actions. Because you know the the weird thing about like three on three, if you're practicing pinch post, for instance, right. If you can't get the pinch post if it's a live drill, they tend to like give up, right? They're like, "Oh, well then this drill is purple so we don't have a purpose." Where invariably, they might make a pass to the wing, the guy comes up to the top, and then all of a sudden he goes pinch post and they get it and they run it. And yeah. you would maybe you get that in the game out of all that. And they get then that's the idea whereas if you have if you have kids that don't get get stuck in just the 3 on 0 drills, they never see that counter move into then we can get that action if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I I agree. I, I used to work at camp and and had a camp offense and we had to spend like the whole first day going five on zero through the camp offense. And then as soon as we put defense <laughs> players out there, like they didn't know where to go. Like all it was, you know, was basic screen down, screen across. But you first you're telling them, well you need a screen down at the blocks. You know, because that's probably where the defense is going to be. So then, when you put defensive out there, they're just running to the blocks, and now the defensive player isn't at the block. So now they're not actually screening anybody, and it's like, and then you get, then the players get yelled at because they can't run the offense properly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, because when you put defense out there, it completely changes, especially for a younger player an inexperienced player. That's a hundred percent different skill doing it five on over vs five on five. An adult with lots of experience can imagine where the defensive player is, and they can transfer a certain degree. That's why NBA teams can get away with doing you know, walkthroughs without a lot of defense and stuff like that, and then they can go out and execute. That's why NBA teams, you can write up a play in a 20-second timeout, and an NBA team can probably execute it because they have enough experience that when the coach is drawing up circles, they can visualize where they are. And even with that, you still see NBA players who mess up, you know, frequently. Oh, yeah. But then you go and you take, you know, fifth graders and you try to do the same thing because you saw, you know, NBA teams all do shoot-arounds and they walk through 5-on-0 offense. So I'm going to walk through my 5-on-0 offense. Well, that 5-on-0 offense and that 5-on-5 offense are two completely different things and there is almost nothing uh, about them that is the same in terms of in terms of the way that the players look at it
1: right now that the other thing is if you're worried about oh if i put five on five with ten-year-olds it's just going to be a look like a war zone Well, that's when I get into okay. Let's break this down into two on two and three on three, and then that my next question is is uh, you know because I'm a huge part method coach. I I I don't want to show them the whole until I build up into the parts, and I know that at certain levels, uh, you know, college or whatever, you might not have time to develop that. Even though I still think you do. Um, Even you know the better they get, the less time you need in reality, but. Um, I wanted your take, I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but um, do you have a sense of that or are you gonna or, or like a part versus whole method and how you teach it?
0: Um, I would I would say certain things I do, I tend to start with the whole um, and try to see where our mistakes are um, and then work down. So I'll, I'll start with five on five, you know, see what. Our mistakes are, or where our strengths are, or what we're going to do, and then go to a two-on-two or a three-on-three drill and really try to focus on whatever it is that I want to practice that I saw in the five-on-five. So if you know, you know, and it, it depends on time of season because it might be that I saw something in our previous game. You know, let's say our pick-and-roll defense was bad last game, so I'm going to come in. We're going to start part essentially. We're going to start three-on-three, and I'm going to you know. Constrain the drill that forces us to run on-ball screens, so that we can work on the on-ball defense there. Um, And so, by the way, when
1: when you're saying five on five, you are like you would put the 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 offense in five on zero, right? To begin, at least give them the idea of what's going on, right?
0: I probably walk through a five on zero offense once. Okay, And, and then we'll walk through it five on five.
1: Like if you're that's if you're teaching it from scratch,
0: yeah, once just be. Well, older players, yeah. Younger players, maybe a couple times with each group. I just think that there's such a difference Mm -hmm. in how you view things and how you behave when there's a defensive player when there's not. And so I think if you spend, let's say, 20, 30 repetitions just walking through 5-on-0, really I don't think you're getting 30 repetitions benefit out of it because once you go to 5-on-5 – It's going to change. And just the way that players perceive the environment, the way that they see things, the way that they're going to act, the way they're going to behave, the way they're going to move, is all different when there's a defensive player there. So I probably, just to give them the initial idea so that we can walk through five-on-five quicker, I'll do it one or two times, five-on-oh. But but basically, I'm just trying to show in that so that we can make – instead of, you know, deliberately walking 5 on 5, we can kind of, you know, walk jog 5 on 5 the first couple times to show the offense. But most of it I'm I'm going to show, you know, 5 on 5 because I want them to see where's the defense going to be if we're trying to set a screen on the weak side, you know, and our guys in the corner, well their defensive player is probably not in the corner. So I don't want to practice running to the corner to set a screen because that's not where the defensive player is. And if the cutters going straight from uh, you know, corner to wing and not setting up a screen, well, now the defense doesn't have to do anything anyway, which maybe that's just dummy motion and I don't really care and they're just interchanging just to hope to catch a little bit of the, you know, defense's attention, so I'm not really worried about that. But if that's, like, legitimately trying to get, you know, that person open for a shot or something, well, you know, if we're doing a 5-0, that's what they're going to do. But if we put defensive players, they're say, so no, we have to, you know, set a screen, you know, how would you – you're in the corner. Your defensive player is in help. How are you going to get yourself open? Mm-hmm. You know, here comes the screen. How are you going to use that screen? You know, and so we can start to walk through and see how our movements are going to change with that defense. You know, being where that where the defender would.
1: And I, I always get concerned when we talk about dummy defense. A for the term, and then B because then it, it does that uh, are we training our guys to play half-assed defense? And are, are they getting it in their mind's eye? Like, of course, if you're r- running a specific action, you, you can say to the defender, well, let him catch the ball. You don't have to deny it or whatever. And then you're in live. But I, that's what I get worried about. And I, I kind of went away from dummy defense anyway because of that. Because then you start getting guys who are half-assing it. And the worry could very well be it will seep into their defensive mindset you know, when, it, when they need it.
0: I agree. I, I generally don't use dummy defense or dummy offense. That's why I don't do a lot of shell drill. Um, because to me that's just dummy offense Um, so yeah I I would agree as much as possible so we'll walk through stuff uh, you know at less than full speed just to walk through you know so we're not really playing if you will and then yeah I want to play and you know like you said certain passes like usually if I'm starting the possession with the ball you know if I throw the ball in you can't steal that pass or Mm -hmm. you know some sometimes if I want to get To a specific point in the offense, then maybe, you know, I won't let them steal the ball until we get to that point kind of thing. Uh, You know, maybe we want to work on our second option. You know, you can't steal the ball during the first option. Let's get the ball reversed. And now once the ball's reversed, now we're live. Something like that. You know, I might do that when we're working on defense too. You know, offense, you know, your dummy offense essentially until we get the ball reversed. Now we're live. Um, just because I want the defense to have to move once or twice before we, you know, do whatever we're going to work on. Um, so I will sometimes limit in that respect. But, yeah, I don't like this idea of, you know, letting the opponent, whether it's the offense, letting the defense come guard me and, and not have to work or letting, uh, you know, off defense letting the offense do whatever they want to do. I don't like that. That's why That's why I try to play – like I said, you know, I'll play small-sided games first if I need to to make it more competitive and then build it out to a five-on-five, you know, or I'll show it five-on-five, see where our mistakes are, then go to a, you know, two-on-two, three-on-three to practice whatever the specific skill is. Um, but I very rarely do anything that I would label dummy.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, because I used to do a rotation drill where the ball would go around the perimeter and then the last guy catching it ha- beats his man off the dribble. And I, and I got kind of frustrated by that because the guy on defense, you know, he needs to get back in the play, but we're like, he sort of has to stand there and let his man just blow right by him. And I, I kind of ultimately made it where I had him start from like out of bounds instead so he can run into the play just so he's not like, just, you know, and I know it sounds, you know, maybe too psychological, but I just, I just didn't. Want to have him in this drill over and over again, or as you rotate, just like get beat and get beat, get beat. I wanted him to learn that you're running back in the play, and you're you're actually you're gonna. We're rotating to help you, and then you are essential to like being back in the play and not getting down. And uh, you know, it's subtle, but it's. I think those are important things too.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. Like we would do things, you know, basically the same way where you know uh, we're passing the ball around or whatever, and I want I want somebody to to penetrate so you know, blow a whistle or have a call or something, and their defensive player has to run and touch a cone and get back in the play okay. or something like that so that now that person who catches the ball is open, attacking the basket, just like they beat their defensive player, and now what's the rest of the defense going to do? And that player has to work hard to, you know, get back into the play.
1: Yeah, that's uh, great.
0: Yeah, same idea. Just, just finding different ways of creating that advantage for the offense without it being because the defense – was told not to do anything
1: right well let's let's wrap up because you've written a couple of terrific books that we've spotlighted before here uh fake fundamentals volume one and fake fundamentals volume two along with a bunch of other great books one being the 21st century practice uh all really valuable stuff that touches upon what we've talked about today and 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 even a, a, so much more um the fake fundamentals though I, I think are interesting and i was wondering if there is a a number one fake
0: fundamental
1: in your book
0: I would say, oh, it's so hard to choose. Uh, <laughs> right, they're all your babies. I would, I would say the one that I talk about the most uh, is probably triple threat. But I would say the one that was my original fake fundamental was the step slide, defensive step slide.
1: Okay. oh, I was, gonna, I thought you were going to say three man weave.
0: Yeah, well, that's probably that. Yeah.
1: One okay one of those three. Okay, good, good. Cuz yeah, the step slide is definitely a, a one that I would have to train out of players. We're all, you know, we talked about this before and we talk a lot about turn and run is really how we don't even do much sliding anyway, but if you did slide, stepping and kind of dragging the back foot behind you, it, 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 like it is taught and I had players come in who clearly were taught that and I'm just looking at it going like that is no way to move, uh, you know, quickly anywhere uh, with with balance. Uh, very strange. And, you know, uh, and I've seen it even at the NBA level guys, uh, teach that sometimes. And I just, and I guess the root of that is, is that that's how they were taught 20 years ago. Right.
0: And, and to me, the root of it is I have never seen a defense or a coach teach uh, a step slide at full speed. Every time I've ever seen it taught to me as a player. And when I watch coaches teach, they teach it in slow motion. And in slow motion, it kind of makes sense because you're almost basically just walking laterally. And But when you go at full speed, the movement changes. And it's the same thing if you look at, say, running and walking. The way that you walk and the way that you run are different. Mm-hmm. They look the same. We're moving forward, one foot after the other, opposite arm, opposite leg. But if you're trying to sprint and you're you know, extending your leg in front of you, landing on your heel, far in front of your base of support you're not going to run very fast Mm -hmm. you know in in sprinting you're going to land with your foot under you or slightly behind your base of support or your center of gravity and so uh, they're different you know and to a you know untrained eye or to just looking at you say oh well you know they look pretty much the same maybe slightly different it's just slightly faster and i think the same thing happens with the step slide oh well You know, moving fast and moving slow looks the same. You know, you just move a little bit faster. But the actual movements fundamentally change when you're essentially walking laterally versus when you're trying to sprint or run laterally or crossover run or however you want to term it. The way that you move, how you push, the angles you create, all of those things are completely different when you're trying to go as fast as you can versus when you're demonstrating uh, in slow motion. And so I think the real problem is from you know generations ago, coaches demonstrated in slow motion, and it's hard to really demonstrate the full speed movement in slow motion. So you demonstrate a different movement in slow motion, and then players tried to copy those coaches, even though those coaches may have meant well, but they were trying to do it in slow motion. And so they try to copy exactly what that coach is doing instead of trying to to copy the idea of what that coach is doing, and so then we ended up with this very piecemeal step and drag type movement, um, which is fundamentally slow, uh, and we're trying to do it as fast as possible. But you just can't move very quickly doing that. Right. And so yeah, that's that's the problem. It's just something that has been passed on from generation to generation, and nobody's really looked at it and said, well, yeah, why would it? no nobody actually does that. At a high level in a game, they may have been taught that, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier. If you ask somebody what they did, because I've had this discussion with professional players, I'm like, they're you know, they're teaching a step slide because they think they step slide. I'm like, you don't step slide, yeah. I do. No, you don't. Let's videotape your feet and watch. You do not step slide. If you have to move fast, you do not step slide. Oh, well, yeah, I do. That's what I was taught. I don't care what you were taught. What do you actually do? You do not step slide. Because if you did, you would get beat. And if you started to get beat, you would change your footwork so you didn't get beat so that you could stay on the court. And so I think it's, it's just one of those things that it gets, keeps getting passed on and on and on. A lot of people don't look at it critically. The better players learn to ignore it uh, and move whatever way that they can to move as fast as possible. Um, and so it's just something that's kind of there and isn't used entirely in practice, even though it's practiced a lot in practice.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's perfectly said and the great wrap up and a circular uh, conversation back to where we started. So uh, as always, Brian, uh, just really fantastic stuff. Don't forget to check out Brian McCormick. Uh, he's got his books all over Amazon. You can download uh, anywhere else we can find them.
0: Uh, they're on if you want a paperback of some of them, they're only available on Lulu.com slash Brian McCormick. Uh, they're also available on 180 shooter dot com. Uh, right now, so, uh, but Amazon's probably the easiest place to find them.
1: All right, great. Well, definitely check out some of those books. And uh, looking forward to—we uh, have a whole lot of things to talk about, I'm sure, for the next one. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it breaking it down. And uh, don't forget, sports fans at B-Ball Breakdown—we're not a channel; we're a conversation. Do you in? Are you in, Brian?
0: I'm in, Coach.